You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 17th of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. How much have you been helped by the honeymoon that you have enjoyed during this campaign? How much have you been helped by the press being soft on you? Oh, well, uh, I tell you what, it's a long honeymoon. I've been around in public life uh, since, uh, well, since the early 60s. Um, If it's a honeymoon, it's about time we consummated it. (laughs) Australia mourns a great Prime Minister as it prepares to choose between two pretty ordinary-looking ones. My guests Ben Ryland, Chiara Ramella and Melkin Charchoglian will be discussing this and today's other top stories, including Taiwan's getting with the programme where same-sex marriage is concerned, Rupert Murdoch's attendance of a play about Rupert Murdoch, and we make our cases for our respective nation's chances at Eurovision. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Chiara Ramella, Ben Ryland and Melkin Charchoglian. Welcome all to the show. And we will start in the country from which half the people at this studio descend. From which at which? From which half the people in this studio descend. That is Australia, which tomorrow will vote in a federal election, while also undergoing something of a period of national mourning for a Prime Minister who won four of them. Bob Hawke, who died yesterday, aged 89. Hawke was a former trades unionist who turned leader of the Labour Party. He was Prime Minister of Australia from 1983 to 1991 and oversaw a programme of extraordinary transformation of Australia's economy, education, healthcare and international outlook. Even Australians who didn't vote for him still liked him. His peak approval rating of 75% seems unlikely ever to be overhauled, and certainly not by tomorrow's contenders. Uh, Ben, my fellow Australian at this table, uh, you cannot fault Hawke's timing here, can you? Um, Is it possible that he has won Labour a fifth election? Absolutely possible. I would be quite surprised if it hasn't affected a lot of people who are going to be voting in Australia tomorrow. I was just having a look at the, the polling figures, and the most recent Guardian Essential poll has put Labour just ahead of the Liberal National Coalition, uh, 51 to 48%. So that's obviously very narrow in the polling, but we're not going to know how much of this has been affected by the death of Bob Hawke until potentially after the election, I suppose. But but as you say, Andrew, uh, he, he was... Bob Hawke was an, an astonishing Prime Minister. He had left behind a legacy that I don't think will be matched by any any Prime Minister going into the future. Uh, he managed to endear himself in such a deeply personal way to so many people across the electorate. You don't get people like that who are willing to take personal risks, who will get up on television and talk openly and emotionally about their daughter being addicted to, to drugs and then shed tears on television. And I mean, he, he spoke after what happened in Tiananmen Square and shed tears in front of the entire world. Uh, He was openly emotional about all of that, and uh, he wore his flaws and his heart on his sleeve. And that, I think, really endeared him to a lot of people in Australia. So losing Bob Hawke, particularly at a time like this, when politics has been on the tips of everyone's tongues for for so many months now, uh, it's really going to make people sit and think about what 
what the Labour Party represents, what Bob Hawke's party represents, and, and really what the election is going to be all about. See, I was thinking about this. Obviously, I come from a very different perspective. I'm not Australian. Um, um, and I am indeed Italian. And I was trying to think about a, a figure that in our politics or other nations' politics has managed to unify both sides of the political spectrum in the same way. And to be honest, I don't think we have anything comparable. But the only person that I could think of um, was Enrico Berlinguer, who was the leader of the Communist Party. And the, I think the only figure in like the 20th century that has managed to unify kind of people behind him. And what, what I'm trying to say is when he did die quite suddenly um, d- during one of his kind of speeches to the public, the European elections were very, um, only a few days away. And the Communist Party did extremely well in those elections. So I think that... Uh, that a sense of honouring um, the past and honouring these figures can definitely have an impact on elections. Yeah, I don't think it's done Labour any harm. And just just picking up on what Ben was saying, there's been a lot of people, a lot of Australians anyway, sharing their favourite memories of Hawke uh, on social media in particular. my own. I was reminded by one of, I think, my favourite illustration of his sort of instinctive connection with the, the pulse of the nation was... Um, the media tried to do a sort of shock scandal, outrage politician makes gaffe thing when he, he was doing a walkabout and he was approached by a, a crotchety member of the public and there was an exchange of views and as Hawke shuffled off, a microphone picked him up picked him up, sighing and uttering something to the effect of silly old bastard um, and the, the Australian media attempted to go sort of <gasps> Prime Minister calls voter silly old bastard and as the story unfolded you could get the, you could sense the media starting to realise I think the public think he was right. <laughs> <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing for Bob Hawke. He, he was always he always managed to be on the right side of public opinion. I mean, oh, it might be an exaggeration to say always, but when it really mattered, he seemed to be on the right side of public opinion. And I mean, I was watching rewatching a couple of his press conferences. Uh, uh, there was one in particular at the National Press Club, I believe, just after he'd become prime minister in 1983, and. Uh, You'd have people stand up in the audience, uh, reporters, journalists stand up in the audience. And I mean, we heard a perfect example at the top of the show with uh, a journalist asking, uh, how much has your free ride in the media uh, really helped you in your journey to become prime minister? And, and he, he just replies with, with a joke. He breaks the tone and the entire room erupts into laughter. He had a, he had a way of really uh, understanding the tone and perhaps not just understanding it, but also setting the tone according to his own liking. Uh, Malcolm Hawke, as I suspect we've established by now, is an absolutely titanic figure in Australia, possibly not that well-known outside of it because there's not really any reason why people need to know about Prime Ministers of Australia from one to the next, especially not in the last decade. It's barely worth learning their names. But watching Australia's kind of response to this from an international perspective, how how strange has it looked? I wouldn't say strange. It's really heartening because I, I... I never imagined the sort of recent prime minister receiving such a re- response. Um, and I mean, actually, yeah, you're right. A lot of people haven't heard about him, but I think they should. I didn't know that much about him. Uh, having read and learned about him recently, it's, like I said, it's titanic what he's done. As you were saying earlier, raised literacy rates by some 40%, effectively created universal health care in the country. These are things that should be discussed. Uh, and it makes you think that maybe there is another politician who can bring, you know, who can have such a legacy. Or maybe, you know, your your anecdote about the silly old bastard like <laughs> maybe nowadays that wouldn't have 
have played out in Hawke's favour and actually who would have been desecrated by the press because those figures, even if they exist now, uh, will will sort of simply be buried in a pile of nonsense and like, you know, the, the, the modern drudgery of the press. Just one final quick thought on the Australian election, Ben, and by final quick thought, I mean taking up of a gratuitous opportunity to put the slipper into one of Hawke's uh, successes as Prime Minister. Uh, this was Tony Abbott, um, who is still insisting that he has a political career. He is the member for my old uh, childhood home, in fact, of the, the division of Warringah. Um, his tribute to Bob Hawke uh, went over pretty badly, it's fair to say. Is there any chance that it is it is going to be what stuffs him in Warringah? I think there's a very good chance that it could stuff him in Warringah. Uh, Warringah, of course, being his, his electorate. Uh, I mean, we all saw what happened with uh, Karen Phelps, who was an independent member. Uh, she has now taken a seat in Parliament. Uh, she was running for Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister's uh, old seat, and she took it. That was a Liberal safe seat. It's been a safe seat for the Liberal Party for as long as Australia has for, been around. For literally ever. And she managed to take it. And how did she do that? Because she is, she's basically an economic liberal. Uh, she's, as far as on, on paper is, con- uh, is, is concerned, she is, she comes from the conservative side of politics. But socially speaking, she is progressive. She is a, a lesbian. She's married to a woman. They have children together. And that's fine. And everyone inside her electorate in, in inner Sydney, well-to-do inner Sydney, decided that that was fine as well. Uh, and the seat of Warringah is not too dissimilar to not that. Not at all. I would not be surprised if Tony Abbott does lose that seat. But to be just to be clear, uh, that three-line uh, statement that Tony Abbott put out there was so utterly tone deaf. It was it was bizarre. It seemed to come with from someone who seemed to have have lost every bone of empathy left inside his body and didn't seem to ring any truth at all either. It was quite surprising. You do have to wonder how how on the day that we lost Australia's most popular prime minister, who the man. Who who will go down as in history as one of Australia's least popular prime ministers, <laughs> thought that that was a good idea to pop out there. Well, let's move on and look now at Taiwan, which has just become the first country in Asia and the 25th country, I think I'm right in saying, overall to legalise same-sex marriage. And yes, I am calling Taiwan a country on purpose in order to annoy the Chinese Communist Party, should it be listening. The vote by Taiwan's parliament follows a decision by Taiwan's constitutional court in 2017 that same-sex couples could go ahead and get married after which Parliament was given two years to get on board. Three different versions of a same-sex marriage law were debated and the most progressive of the three, the one put forward by Taiwan's government, was the one adopted. So, uh, let's hear it for Taiwan. This is obviously a good news story, but Malkin, it it is that that thing of it being uh, the first domino on this front to have tipped in Asia. Is that potentially significant? Well, Taiwan is pretty advanced in terms of its uh, LGBT, LGBTQ rights. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect other countries in its periphery to follow suit quickly enough. But I, there's been actually a, a, a bit of outrage within the country because um, the government put the question to a referendum, and actually the majority of the population, or the ones that voted, some seventy percent, said that they don't want same-sex marriage, even though the Supreme Court said that you know it was unconstitutional to deny them that right. Um, and now that, you know, people are up in arms online saying, well, why has the government passed this law? Well, actually, you know, the, the court doesn't comment. Uh, you know, the referendum should re- re- reflect what the court thinks. This isn't a question for the people. It's a question of constitutional right. Um, and I, I hope that that will incentivize other 
Asian countries to follow suit rather than look to public opinion, look to, you know, actual the, the legalities of the question. Um, ben, is it complacent to assume, though, that all the movement on same-sex marriage is going to be forever in this one direction? Because 25 countries out of the world is not many, certainly not nearly enough. But this has happened fast. This has all happened in the 21st century. If I remember correctly, Netherlands was the first circa 2001. So the momentum established has been considerable. Um, is there any stopping it? Absolutely. Or reversing it. Absolutely. There's always the danger that or any of the, these uh, these massive steps forward can be reversed. And that's the dangerous thing about uh, when we progress in... When we, when we have social progression like this, such as same-sex marriage, you can get to the point where it's, it's easy to become complacent, where we start taking these things for granted. But the fact that it wasn't there in the first place and that we existed for so long without it there at all and, and so many people not even questioning whether it should be there or not, same-sex marriage, whether it should exist. That 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 normalization means that it can be normalized like that all over again. It has actually been reversed in some parts of the world. Uh, in, in fact, it, it was legalized in California and then reversed uh, back again. So, you know, these sorts of things can happen. And there are murmurs on the horizon that there are some parts of, of politics in the United States that realistically are considering reversing uh, same-sex marriage there as well. Now that, I mean, who knows how realistic that might possibly be, possibly be into the future. But we should never ever take these things for granted in the case of taiwan i think it's fantastic that they've managed to to take this this step forward but regionally speaking it's as melcon said it's going to be a massive step to open that up to other parts of the region well kiara to ask the the same question in a slightly different way is there at least any hope that once you reach a critical mass of countries which have legalized same-sex marriage and enough other countries around the world can look at them and go well you know civilization does not appear to have collapsed um perhaps we should just let it happen because it has happened in countries yours not least among them in which this would have seemed absolutely incredible uh you know 30 years ago absolutely i think you know it's it's very right to have um, doubts and, and reservations as to how quickly this potentially could ever happen but i do think that this is a huge step you know for for a whole continent to have at least one country, well, if we want to call it a country, uh, in it that does... We do, we do. <laughs> that, we, that, we, that recognises same-sex marriage is, is a huge step and also, I think, motivates a lot of... I, I, I understand that a lot of states will have to recognise and, and push forward legislation with or without the approval of, of their people, but I think the, 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 the movements of... of, of pushing for recognition of, of gay rights will only be bolstered by something like this. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Ben Ryland, Malcolm Charchoglian and Chiara Ramella. Coming up next, would you go and see a play about you? Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in The Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. 
Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. And you're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Ben Ryland, Chiara Ramella and Malcolm Charchoglian. Now, playing a well-known public figure must be a stiff challenge for any actor, but much the more exacting one assumes when playing the public figure in question for an audience, including the public figure in question. Spare a thought then for Bertie Carvel, currently holding down the lead role in James Graham's Inc., which recalls a crucial moment in the ascent to moguldom of media tycoon Rupert Murdoch, filling one of the less cheap seats at the Samuel J. Friedman Theatre earlier this week was Murdoch himself. Carvel, who did meet Murdoch afterwards, acknowledged that it might not have been the most relaxed performance he'd ever given. Um, Malkin, you have seen Inc., which we will come to, but I have to say I, this, this story does endear Rupert Murdoch to me somewhat because I've always thought the most fun part about being as recognisable as someone like Murdoch would just be doing stuff like this to freak <laughs> people out. I think so. I, I, I was disappointed, I have to say, to discover that he didn't sit front row centre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, arms folded, just glaring. Well, I, I think he should have sat in the front row because actually, I'm not surprised he enjoyed the play. He he is portrayed with a bit of gr- begrudging admiration because it is, at the end of the day, a black comedy. It's a race to the bottom and Murdoch is there creating all the fun. So the background is Murdoch buys this, this boring left-wing paper, The Sun, in 1969 uh, and turns it into what we have today and it in turn revolutionizes the newspaper industry in a very bad way everyone starts doing all the same cheap trick to sell copies uh, and he gets this guy called larry lamb to edit it at the beginning and lamb is a sort of like salt of the earth guy and he's got a chip in his shoulder and murdoch is portrayed in this sort of like satanic but fun satanic sort of mephistopheles figure <laughs> who appears and he's like hey lamb how's it going why don't you do that just give you know just give the people what they want give them tits do this and then he just disappears but, but see the thing is I, I think there is an image of Murdoch there that Murdoch himself has always clearly enjoyed on on the one occasion that he played himself in an episode of the Simpsons uh, if I recall rightly he introduces himself with the phrase Rupert Murdoch billionaire tyrant <laughs> well that, that's what he is but and he is played in that brilliantly sort of caricatural way that you can't help but enjoy so if I were Mur- Murdoch, I'd have gone and seen it too. He must have enjoyed it because from what I've read, he'd actually already seen it in London. Yeah. So he's gone twice to see it. And this time he's brought Rebecca Brooks and Tony Gallagher with him. Uh, he, so he, he did, just a he, riot. He did turn up with quite the squad. Uh, ben, would you go and see a play about you? Actually, I don't know that no one's done one. Has, has, has there been a theatrical production of, of Ben Ryland the Life? Uh, not yet. It's yet to premiere. I believe that the, they're still at the funding stage. <laughs> Big question marks over that one. Uh, I would absolutely go and see a play about me. Um, I don't know how good it would be. I can't imagine anyone being able to pull off such a performance. <laughs> but it are, would be compelling are, are, are suge- nonetheless. Are you suggesting that only you could play the lead role, Ben? Well, naturally. Although I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I would ever want to play myself. By Ben Ryland, for Ben Ryland. <laughs> <laughs> May have to buy all the tickets as well. Uh, Chiara, would you? Oh, absolutely. See, I, I watched a clip of Berlusconi because obviously Sorrentino's f- new film about Berlusconi has just come out. It's called Loro. 
it's brilliant because in a similar way it's both condemning and also kind of I don't know weirdly admirational of, of, of this befuddling figure of Berlusconi and he was interviewed about him about it and he said that he had no particular you know willingness to go see it but I don't believe that one bit Zuckerberg went and saw the social network I yeah, think he, he organised a bit of a staff trip as well or at least like the whole staff to laugh it off effectively yeah I think so and you would because if there was something that was attacking you you would want to know what well it depends what it was on about where you are on the trajectory of power if you're Murdoch and you're at the top and no one can touch you then of course you're going to go see it but if you're like me and you're still on the way to power <laughs> you know you don't want to go see it because it's like you know it's like cutting yourself you, you know it's, Sorry, it's like Mel- googling Mel- yourself Mel- Melkin just a, a quick follow up question there. Where, where exactly on the ascent to power do you see yourself uh, <laughs> at, 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 at this moment somewhere between uh, Theresa May and Murdoch <laughs> okay well that's 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 worth waiting for it's interesting I find that most people in power don't actually want to tell us whether they watch de- popular depictions of themselves or not. There's no word from the Queen on whether she watches The Crown There's or no watches Helen Mirren. That's very, very true. Although Bob Hawke never mentioned whether he watched the movie about him either. Yeah, interesting. I, you can't believe they don't. It's like it's like when when people say I don't read the reviews of my records. Of course you do. Everyone well, of does. course. I mean, Donald Trump tunes into every news item about him, which is why he watches too much television. Well, finally tonight, then we will move on to the section I've spent the last twenty one minutes avoiding. But <laughs> I can I can no longer because the the annual descent of Eurovision is shortly upon us. Uh, we will therefore individually discuss the representatives of our respective nations, or at least Ben and Kiara will, as Melkin has abruptly declared himself a citizen of San Marino. Is this this another step on your path to world domination, Malcolm? I'm starting rock by rock, literally. Yeah, okay, fine. I've been to San Marino. I did a big story for Monocle about it a couple of years ago. It's ridiculous. You're probably the only Australian to have been there. I might might be. I mean, it's the the size of a golf course, and yet it's an actual country. I don't know how they've pulled that off. Um, So, Malcolm, you are apparently from San Marino, fine, and I have been assigned... Iceland uh, for some reason. I mean, I've been there a few times, but uh, okay. I, I think we, if we start with the more actual plausible connections between individual panelists here and Eurovision contestants, um, Chiara, introduce us to Italy's. Oh, I love this song. I'm so I'm so psyched because actually over the last few when years, when are you not? <laughs> well, I'm just a very enthusiastic person. Anyway, um, I've always supported Italy despite really not liking the songs but this this year I like it for many different reasons a I think it's a very very good song it's um it's very chilled out bit of trap if you know what I'm saying and <laughs> I've no idea what you're talking about but it does sound damn exciting bit of Italian and Arabic influences what's most interesting is that the artist is called Mahmoud he won Italy's uh, Sanremo which is kind of the country's most important well no, yeah main singing competition and because his father is Egyptian, um, but he's obviously born in Italy, um, Salvini and his Leganord party had something to say about whether this was the best Italian song. And after uh, the song was released, um, uh, there were even like a little bit of remonstrations about foreign foreign music not being allowed on air. Um, so we should listen to it, to uh, allow it on air. We should. Let's have some of that. <laughs> Come se avessi avuto soldi, soldi Dimmi se ti manco te ne foti, foti Mi chiedevi come va, come va, come va Adesso come va, come va, come va 
Is, is that the official dance routine you're doing there, Chiara, or is this, this something you've been working on we yourself? We accidentally play, play the Italian national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 this is my go-to dance routine, but I think it applies very well. What I would say, soldi means money in Italian. It's a very kind of touching um, description of a life or a childhood lived in the peripheries. Um, and... I just, I just think it's, it, it could do it. I think Italy is one of the favourites this year. Okay. It could be our year. Um, there, there's a very real chance if we don't move on, we might not get a chance to play all these <laughs> clips, and, and that, that would obviously be a, a catastrophe. Um, Melkin, uh, as a representative of your people, well, <laughs> from the, the, the snowbound hillside of, of San Marino... Well, the reason why I chose San Marino is because in this sort of weird renaissance wave, they've outsourced them, their song to mercenaries. They've got a <laughs> Turkish man for San Marino could they not have found anyone and this is the second time he's representing San Marino they probably couldn't have what I found out in San Marino is because it's so tiny and yet is a nation like everybody has to do like 20 different jobs the Minister for Defence is also the postman Um, and could have been the Eurovision entry I I, I exaggerate only slightly for comic effect not uncommon though not uncommon to send people from other countries to represent uh, you at at, at Eurovision we've had Australians representing other countries at Eurovision for years we had lots of practice before we put Exactly. Celine, Celine Dion represented Switzerland and there she's Canadian. Well, I love it. I, I love the outsourcing it to, you know, paid hands. But at least get a good one because this guy, Sir Hat, <laughs> I mean, what he sings is effectively a borderline predatory song about him staring at women in clubs and there's like strippers everywhere in the music video anyway. And all it is is just the refrain. <laughs> you say all that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> and he just says, nah, 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 over again. I mean, here are some of the lyrics. No matter what you do, love all colors of this life. What does that even mean? I mean, he's had a year to write this song, and this is what he comes up with. <laughs> okay, well, after that build-up, let's let's hear some of it. Yeah, that's that that that's a shocker, but even by Eurovision standards, it's like produ- one of those old polyphonic ringtones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was actually Andrew's Nokia 96 uh, going off. Um, ben, uh, let's let's move along to Australia, uh, land of our Please. birth, etc. Um, are we going to win this year? I think we're in we're a, with a very, very good chance. I, If I remember correctly, I spoke to Monocle's Eurovision correspondent, Fernando Eurovision Agus desk Pacheco. chief, to give him his, his correct title. Eurovision oh, I apologise. Yes, desk chief. We, desk we, don't, we, don't, chief. We, don't, we don't have a Eurovision bureau. That would be insane. <laughs> would be insane. <laughs> not by my, not by my <laughs> but I believe he told me last update was that Australia was the second favourite at the moment. Come on. Uh, and who's the first favourite? Uh, the Netherlands. <laughs> Is this according to Ipsos Mori? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, let, let, let's talk up Australia's chances. Kate Miller-Heidke, I said she took this uh, mini crown, I suppose, uh, when she had to compete a, uh, against a bunch of other Australian acts. Uh, so she's already got the Australian vote to, to take her to Eurovision this year. She wrote this song about her battle with depression and it's a it's an uplifting amazing lyrically amazing beautiful song all about uh, owning something that has been dragging you down for so long so it's it's so beautiful in the way that it's 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 put forward and also she l- quite literally performs acrobatics during this. She's uh, suspended on top of a giant bendy pole thing, which I, I don't know how she manages to sing live while on top of this giant toothpick, but there you go, she does it. Okay, let's hear some of that. <laughs> Grandma, 
Yep, that's an absolute ripper, and it's going to win. That's that's, <laughs> that's the Australian entry. We just have time for me to consider the, to consider the one or make a case for the one that I'm apparently representing, uh, which is Iceland's entry. Now, I want to make it very clear: I have done absolutely no research into this. I don't really know the name of the song or who it's by or anything about it. But I want to make it clear in my defence that this is only because I don't care and couldn't be bothered. <laughs> Um, That's the spirit. So, so, so. It's such a, such a pity, though, because it's an absolute cracker. Do you actually not? Uh, I, I, do you want to listen to it first or do you want to tell me? Or do you want me to tell you? You've got about 10 seconds to explain it and then we'll hear some of it. Okay, the band has been described as award-winning techno BDSM. Yeah, who what? hasn't? <laughs> who hasn't? They're anti-capitalist. <laughs> um, the song is called Hate Will Prevail. Okay, I'm, right. I'm, I'm starting to kind of warm to them. Uh, let, let, let's hear some of it. Uh, well, I, I think oh. a worthy second place behind Australia. <laughs> that is the sound there. of a headache right there, isn't it? <laughs> it, it, it is. Um, that discordant note uh, does bring us to the end of today's show. Kara Ramella, Ben Ryland and Malcolm Charchoglian, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Bill Luti, researched by Neelam Nijar. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie, I think I'm right in saying. And there's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 18. London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Have a splendid Eurovision weekend.